I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We are continuing to work our way through the book of Acts. We have seen in recent weeks the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, soon, very soon to be known as Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote half of our New Testament. We saw how he came to faith in Christ and he was ministered to in Damascus by a, named, by a man named Ananias. And this week we see that Paul, Saul, is continuing in his journeys and he's headed south, away from Damascus, to Jerusalem. And similar to what happened to him in Damascus happens to him again in Jerusalem. Namely, the disciples that are there, they're fearful of him. They're sort of thinking that perhaps he's an agent provocateur. He has been so successful at killing Christians and locking Christians up and persecuting the church. Now, all of a sudden, he professes to be a Christian. And, of course, the church in Jerusalem is uh, rightly concerned that perhaps this is all a ploy, a ruse, that he might infiltrate their ranks, find out who they are, only to further aid himself in his mission to persecute the church. And so what Saul really needs is he needs someone to make an introduction for him, to be an encourager of the church in Jerusalem to accept him. And so we meet this morning a character named Barnabas. We've, met, we've seen him before, but we're going to look a little bit more in depth at him this morning. I want to draw your attention to one verse in particular, verse 27, but we'll pick it up in verse 26. We'll pray, we'll read the text, we'll pray, and we will, we'll get to work, as is our custom. Verse 26, when he, namely Saul, or Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they didn't believe that he was a disciple. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him. He went and he got him, this supposed, alleged agent provocateur, this guy that's trying to spy out the church. Barnabas went and he got him, and he brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he, Saul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and he disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Let's, let's pray and ask God's help. Oh, Father, we just say thank you so much for Barnabas, for the ministry that he had. We thank you, Lord, that his introduction of Saul to the church at Jerusalem and his encouragement of Saul and his encouragement of the church produced one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, one of the greatest missionaries, a man used of you, O oh Lord, just to write to us about half the New Testament. And we just say thank you for Saul. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his enduring ministry to us today. But, Lord, we also want to say thank you for the man that stood behind him. We say thank you for Barnabas. God, as we look at Barnabas this morning, I pray that you would work in our hearts here at First Baptist to make all of us more and more like Barnabas. Help us to be sons of encouragement, we pray, God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So what is in a name? A name is so important. Do you ever stop to think about people's names and what they might mean? I've encountered some rather humorous names. I'm sure you have as well. Consider a few of these names, and these are names of individuals I've met, and every single one of these is a legitimate true name. I'm not making any of this up, okay? Art Major. 
art major. Wonderful man, deacon at First Baptist Church, Dripping Springs. His name was Art Major. Lady there as well, by the name of Barb Dwyer. Say that three times fast. Barb Dwyer. Barb Dwyer. She was really kind. Her name was no indication of her personality. Barb Dwyer. Other individuals that I've known over the, over the years, Candy Kane, Dick Tater, Dictator, Luke Warm, no joke, Luke, his parents named him Luke, knowing he was having the last name Warm, Luke Warm, Shanda, Shanda Lear, Shanda Lear. I don't know what these parents were thinking when they named their kids these names. I just have no idea. A few doctors I've known over the years, I'm looking at you, Dr. Tom. Your name is perfectly normal, but listen to this. <clears throat> I knew a dentist once whose name was Dr. Watamaniac. Watamaniac. And he was scary with that drill, no doubt. There was a surgeon that I met one time whose name was Dr. Klutz, a surgeon named Dr. Klutz. And an anesthesiologist named Dr. Tranquilid. Tranquil lead, as though he had tranquilized him himself. I think the first time I met someone who had a really funny name, I was in high school, and uh, she was actually a couple of grades ahead of me. She wasn't doing so well in Spanish, so we ended up in the same grade 10 Spanish class. And her name was Dusty Broom. Can you imagine that? So, you know, like the character from the movie James Bond, he always introduces himself, my name is Bond, James Bond. Well, this, she just decided to embrace it for what it was. So she would always introduce herself. Whenever she would meet somebody new, she'd say, my name is Broom, Dusty Broom. And people would always laugh and say, oh, ha, 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 what's your real name? And she'd say, no, really, it's Dusty Broom. I'm Dusty Broom. It was a name you never forget. Our study this morning begins with a man who did not have a humorous name. He had a nickname that was given to him by the apostles that spoke to his character. We first encountered him when we were back in Acts chapter 4, and we'll flip there in just a moment. But when we encountered him in chapter 4, the text introduced him to us as a man named Joseph who was called by the apostles Barnabas. And Luke tells us that this name translated means son of encouragement. The man's given name was Joseph, or perhaps Joseph. But after people got to know him, they gave him a new name, a nickname. They called him Barnabas. Why? Because he was such an encouragement to everyone there in the church. He was an encouragement to their lives. And as we get to know Barnabas this morning better through the Word of God, what we're going to learn is that his primary calling, the thing he was gifted at, the thing he just did so well, seemed to be encouraging others. And you might think to yourself this morning, I don't really need a sermon on how to be a better encourager. But hold that thought because we are looking primarily at the life of a man named Saul who would go on to almost single-handedly transform the Mediterranean world through his church-planting efforts. And Saul would not have been welcomed, would not have been greeted, and would not have been supported in this work if it hadn't been for a man whose gifting in life, whose calling in life, was encouragement. So before you dismiss this message this morning saying, I don't need a word, I don't need a sermon on encouragement or how to be a better encourager, Stop for a second and think about how your words could positively impact others who may then go on to make a tremendous difference for the kingdom of God. 
We meet Barnabas in this day and age. I want you to flip back with me. I want you to look in Acts chapter 4. We encounter him at the tail end of Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. The church has just preached Christ. The apostles have preached Christ. The church is flourishing. And in Acts 4.32, it says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, verse 36, who was also called by the apostles, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it down at the apostles' feet. Now, this is a man who is identified by Luke as being an encourager within the church, so much so that the church said, we're not going to call you Joseph anymore, we're going to call you Barnabas. This is his new name because they recognized that this was a man that was going to come alongside them, that was going to use not only his words, but his possessions in order to strengthen the church, to build up the church, to edify those around him, that they might be more emboldened to preach the word of God, that the word of God, that the cross of Christ would be further proclaimed, and that God himself would be further glorified. All this from a man who just decided he was going to take what he had and he was going to use it to bless those around him. He comes and he lays it at the apostles' feet, and that's the last we see of him. Luke has other concerns. He goes on to talk about other individuals. But we meet him again, and we recognize here in Acts chapter 9 that as Luke is writing this account of the early church, this man was not just a singular character to be seen and forgotten in Acts chapter 4. We're going to see him repeatedly throughout this Saul, throughout this character's life. He is an an influential figure, not only here in chapter 9, where he introduces Saul to the apostles, but later on as well. In chapter 15, don't flip there, actually, sorry, chapter 11, we read in verses 19 and 24, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word. Uh, I have the wrong passage marked here in my notes. Let me just read this to you. This is from Acts chapter 11. It says, Now those who are, oh no, I guess this is the right one. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They recognized that there were people who were being converted to Christ. They heard this report. And Acts chapter 11 says that when the leaders of the church in Jerusalem heard this, they sent a man to this church to make sure they were grounded and to encourage them. And who do you think they sent? Well, they sent the son of encouragement himself. They sent the man called Barnabas. It says in verse, 30, in verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and he saw the grace of God that was upon them, he was glad 
And he exhorted them all. Notice this. He exhorted them using his words. He's encouraging them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And it goes on. Barnabas sees this church rocking and rolling in Antioch, and he says, this is a good thing going on here. We need more help. And the text immediately tells us that Barnabas went off to Tarsus. Remember, this is where they've sent Saul after he was, you know, had death threats against him there in Jerusalem. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas, at the forefront of this movement, encouraging the church in Antioch, going and finding additional men to come and help disciple, finding Saul of Tarsus, bringing him back. We meet him again later on down the road. Don't flip there, but we see in chapter 15, we read of another account in which Saul, now at this point in time known as Paul, Paul and Barnabas are traveling. They are missionaries. On a previous missionary journey, they had taken this man along with them, a man named John Mark, who halfway through the missionary journey, we don't really know why. Perhaps he got cold feet as a, as a result of the persecution. Perhaps he just got homesick. He wanted to go back and see his mom and dad. We, we don't really know the reasons why. But halfway through the missionary journey, this man, John Mark, he checks out. As they're preparing for their second missionary journey, John Mark shows up and he wants to go. And Saul says, Paul says, I don't think so. You quit on us last time. And Barnabas, Barnabas says, no, we should give him another chance. And this erupted into a huge conflict between Barnabas and Paul, such that Paul and Barnabas separated Paul chose another traveling companion whom we'll see in due time. And Barnabas took John Mark. And you may not know this, but let me just tell you about John Mark. At this point in time, he has the reputation of being a quitter. And Barnabas could not have foreseen what would come of the life of John Mark, but this we now know. John Mark was the amanuensis that the apostle Peter used to write 1st Peter. Peter dictated it, but almost certainly John Mark was the pen that the Holy Spirit moved to write words to paper. And the second gospel that we have in our Bible, the gospel of Mark, probably the earliest gospel of any of the four that were to be written, was written by John Mark. That's where we get the second gospel of the New Testament. Saul looks at this guy and he says, he's a quitter. Nothing good is going to come of him. I'm done. I'm out. And if you're John Mark, those words are true. He has been a quitter. He has pulled up short. He has not gone the distance. And in those moments, believe me, you're standing next to a man of greatness, a man like Saul of Tarsus, a well-educated man, in those moments, being next to someone like Saul, being next to someone like Paul, does not encourage you. You look at this man, you see his determination, you see his perseverance and how far he is willing to go, and you cannot help but compare yourself to him, and you recognize all your faults and all your failures, and you say, you know what, I'm never going to be as good as Saul or Paul, and I'm never going to measure up. And it's in those moments that what you need is someone to come along and say, hey, you know what, you're not Saul, You're not Paul, but you're still pretty great yourself. 
Barnabas says, this is a man that God can use. And you know what, Saul? If you're not down with that, I'm going with Barnabas. I'm going with, I'm going with John Mark. That's what Barnabas says to Paul. So this man is a man that doesn't necessarily just see what is. But in God's grace, he sees what can be. And he's willing to encourage everyone he meets to press on to be all that they can be. I want you to go back now to chapter 9. He did this for Saul. It says in verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join Saul, attempted to join the disciples. And again, they're thinking he's a, sort of like a spy, you know, this guy that's coming in to sort of spy them out, take down names. He's going to pretend to be a Christian. He's going to pretend to worship, but really he's just taking down names so that he can eventually lock all these guys up in jail and throw away the key. So they don't have anything to do with him. They're like, yeah, well, we know all about this guy. We don't want him in our worship services. We don't want him knowing who we are. This is a security concern. Barnabas, he's familiar with the actual account of what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus. He's familiar not only with this testimony of salvation that Saul has, but he has seen the fruit that has come out of this man's life. He's not just saying, oh, the Lord saved me, oh, the Lord saved me, oh, the Lord saved me. He's going out and he's preaching to the people that used to be his colleagues. He's going out and preaching to the Jews in the synagogues, telling them that they need to convert to Christ. Barnabas is aware of all of this. And he sees now that Saul has come to Jerusalem, having fled from Damascus because they're trying to kill him there for the name of Christ. And he sees his own brothers and sisters in the church in Jerusalem, fearful of this guy, and rightly so because of his reputation. And they don't want to have anything to do with him. Knowing the truth and seeing the situation, Barnabas has a choice he can make. Hey, I've got a good reputation. They've given me this great nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement. They send me on missions to other churches whenever they need somebody to go to these other churches to encourage and ground these new believers in Christ. I mean, I've got a great career going here in the church in Jerusalem. Why should I stick my neck out for this guy that used to kill people? Well, one reason. Because Jesus Christ saved him. And Jesus Christ intends to use him. And we are called to welcome anyone who is a true believer in Christ into the fellowship of the church. And Barnabas knows that. So he goes to Saul Verse 27, it says he takes him, okay? So he goes to Saul, he says, hey, come with me. He grabs him. And where is he going to take this former killer, this former persecutor of the church? Why, he's going to take him right to the doorstep, not of just any ordinary Bible study or house gathering of the church in Jerusalem. He's going to take him straight to the apostles, the leaders in the church. Talk about a gambit. Talk about a gamble. If Barnabas has misjudged Saul's character, if Barnabas has misunderstood the true nature of Saul and what he's all about, he's about to bring this whole thing crashing down because he's about to bring the chief persecutor of the church into the presence of the chief leaders of the church. 
He brings him in. Barnabas took him and he brought him to the apostles. And then he begins to praise Saul. He begins to give words of affirmation about the man's character. It says that he declared, he declared to them about how he, on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas brings Saul, Paul, into the presence of the apostles and he compliments him. And he uses his words, speaking about Saul, to praise him, to commend him, to speak highly of him, not to Saul, but to the apostles, the leaders of the church, and through them to the whole church, such that everyone hears how great Saul really is. The text goes on. It says, he went in, verse 28, he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly. So boldly, in fact, that our passage concludes that the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews that were gathered in Jerusalem, they wanted to kill him. Everywhere he goes, he is so convincing as a Christian, so convincing of his, in his preaching that the people that used to be his colleagues, everywhere he goes and he encounters them, they now want to put him to death. They want to execute him. But what I really want to do is I want you to focus in on this particular point. Barnabas took him, verse 27, and he brought him to the apostles, and he spoke highly of Saul. I mean, God's word tells us that we are to be imitators of Christ. And we encounter all throughout the letters of Paul as he's writing to the churches that as he imitates Christ, so the churches should imitate Paul. And of course, we know from his writings to the church that Paul was a great encourager of the church, constantly exhorting them to press on into all the fullness of Christ. We shouldn't forget that the man that Paul was imitating when he encourages the church was this man named Barnabas. So how are you doing in this area? I just want to ask you this morning, do you seek with your words or with your time or with your possessions, with all that you have, do you seek to encourage others around you? How encouraging are you to your friends? Are you busy in the ministry of encouragement? And if people were to give you a nickname, what would they say is your nickname? Would it be, oh, that's Sally Downer. She's always like talking about how everything is miserable and bad and I don't want to be around her. Or would they say, you know, that's a person that always has a kind word. That's a person that always, I always like to talk to because they make me laugh or they themselves are always laughing. They're full of joy. The book of Proverbs, the sages of old said, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life. You can use your tongue to bring death or you can use your tongue to bring life 
Whatever you're engaging in, if you love it, you will reap those fruits. Meaning if you're a constant discourager, a constant critic, sooner or later, what you sow, you shall reap. And that criticism is going to come back on you. But if you're a constantly gracious person that's always complimenting, always encouraging, always trying to help others, sooner or later, what you sow, you reap. And that encouragement comes back on you. Power, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who eat it, who, who love it, will eat its fruits. Let's consider specifically then, this morning, this is a very practical sermon this morning. I want to consider specifically how we can use our words to be encouraging to others within the Christian faith, within this church. I want to tell you that in your repertoire, in your toolbox, you need to have at least three kinds of words that you're always ready to give, that you're just ready to pull out at a moment's notice as the situation calls for it. Number one, words of affirmation, what we see here Barnabas doing with Saul. Number two, words of comfort. When life gets us down, when someone says, we're quitters, we stop halfway, we're never going to finish, or has some other critical thing to say about us, we need to understand how we can comfort those who are being lambasted. And third, and perhaps the area we need to grow most in as a church, is how to express words of concern. Now, before we jump to words of concern, let me just say, if you can't encourage and if you can't comfort, don't try concern. Don't share concern because it'll just come across as criticism and condemnation. But one of the things that we also need to learn how to do as a church is how to speak into each other's lives in a way that calls ourselves to account and to strive to be more and more holy, more and more pursuing the glory of Christ. But first, I want to look at words of affirmation. When it comes to affirmation, what we need to recognize is that all of us in here have been affirmed at some point in time or another. Think back to your childhood. Think back to that teacher you had in elementary school or that teacher you had at university in which you were frustrated or you were disgruntled or discontent or you were miserable. You were convinced no matter what, you couldn't make it. Think of that one person who encouraged you, who said, no, I see something there. I think you can do this and motivated you to continue pressing on in your studies. I remember when I was a boy, <laughs> I remember when I was a boy at elementary school, we had a teacher, PE teacher, who was trying to teach us this game. I don't even remember what the point of it was, but essentially he paired us up with, with partners, okay? And uh, the idea was your partner was going to be blindfolded, and there was an obstacle course, and you had to run around this obstacle course with your partner. And you were not blindfolded, your partner was, and so you had to guide them over these obstacles to get to the finish line. Well, so I was paired up with this girl. Her name was Lindsay. I will never forget this. She had the blindfold on. I was holding her hand. And, of course, they've got the whistle. They're going to blow the whistle, and it's a race, and you're going to go. And there's this other guy. His name was Daniel Ice, and he was a goody two-shoes. And he was leading some other student. And the whistle blew, and we took off. And, of course, I'm just flying over this obstacle course. The girl is behind me. I'm holding her hand, and I'm just running, jumping, and ducking. And she's blindfolded. She can't see anything. She's smacking her head on this. She's tripping over that tire. She's just, like, getting brutalized. We get about a quarter of the way through this course. This poor girl's got to have sustained at least several concussions at this point. And, and the PE teacher, his name was Joe Pollard. Doctor, he actually had a Ph.D. In, in phys ed, Dr. Pollard. And he blew his whistle and he said, stop, stop. And, uh, of course, I'm like almost, I'm, I'm further than those other guys. Like, we're, we're much further along on the obstacle course. 
And he comes up and he says, Josh. First, he administered first aid to my, my friend. That was the first thing. She had a cut on her head. She was bleeding. She needed help. And he takes me aside and he says, Josh. He says, look at Daniel Ice, the goody two-shoes. Look at him. And he says, you see how he is standing with his partner, with his hands on, on his partner's side, and, and he's guiding him over the obstacles and whispering in his ear and telling him what to do? I'm like, yeah, I see that. <laughs> and he's like, that's the idea of teamwork, that you're working together, that you're working as a team. And I remember I was like, yeah, okay, I guess. But I was devastated because I wanted to be first. I wanted to win. And he looked, he took me aside, he said, and I, so I was devastated by that criticism in front of the whole class. And, and so, I, you know, he took me aside, he said, listen, I know you want to win. And that's great. You're a fierce competitor. And that's the thing I really love about you. But you have to learn how to temper that desire to win with not beating up your teammates. You know, that's just a basic thing. I don't remember exactly how he worded it, but I'll never forget the encouragement. I was down and out. I was like, man, I just brutalized this poor girl. I'm probably going to get in trouble later today for this. You know, like somebody's going to say something to my mom and dad. I'm going to go home and get grounded. I just know it. And he said, listen, it's not, it's not bad wanting to win. And he encouraged me in that. I think if any of you were to stop and to think about your life, at certain crucial moments, when you're trying to decide between option A and option B, at certain crucial moments, if you were to look back and think carefully, I have no doubt that each and every single one of you would be able to testify to a friend who came to you in that moment and said, look, you got some weaknesses here, sure, but look at this amazing strength that you have. Look at this amazing quality. Look at this amazing attribute you have. You should do this. You should do this. You would be great at this. I think if you were all to step back and think about it, you would remember that person who told you that at a crucial moment in your life, and it gave you just that extra little bit of courage to take that risk, to step out and say, yeah, I think I can do this, to pursue that dream. And you can be that for someone else. You can encourage others. It's not that we're all facing life and death decisions or career or life-defining moments every single day, but we all struggle with discouragement, such as just coming to church on Sunday, such as just being faithful to share the gospel with our coworker, such as just doing a good job as a mom and dad at home. We wake up and we're like, ah, like I went into the bathroom this morning and my kids have left it full of toothpaste again. It's gross. This whole bathroom is disgusting. You're like, I'm done. I'm just done with my kids. I, I just don't. And you want to explode at them. You come to church. It helps to have another parent who's been there who can say, you know what? You can't see this now, but they will sooner or later grow out of that. You're like, yeah, but right now I just want to hurt him, right? Like, I just want to go home and do some discipline. You're like, no, no, you need to restrain that impulse. I love that you have standards for your kids. You have to have the word of encouragement. Let me give you some tips on how to do this, because this is an area in which we struggle. We're really good at complaining. We're really great at criticizing. We struggle to be complimentary or helpful. Let me give you some tips. Number one, be creative 
Think about the people around you. Get to know them, understand who they are, and genuinely, sincerely compliment something about them. Be able to have a compliment for them that is true. People pick up sooner or later when you're just saying nice stuff, but you don't really mean it. If you want to genuinely encourage someone, find something about them that is truly, genuinely admirable, and make sure you tell them about it. Don't just look at the external. You're dressed nice today. Wow, you're, you're sharp. I like your shoes. Those are great. Look beyond the external. Think about what is true about them, and then praise them for it. And not just them. Be sure to share that praise of them with others as they are present. That's what Barnabas did here. Here's a man who's bold in preaching the word of God. He went in and out. He was so faithful, in fact, that they wanted to kill him in Damascus and tried to. Isn't this a great guy? I mean, courage like you wouldn't believe and a commitment to Christ. And oh, by the way, all these years of training and studying at the feet of Gamaliel. I mean, who knows what all Barnabas said to the apostles. But he took Saul with him to the apostles, and he said, this is a great guy. Look at all of these wonderful attributes. And the apostles were convinced, and they were persuaded. None of that would have happened if it was all a lie. None of that would have happened if Barnabas was just stretching and reaching for things that he was making up just to try and somehow get this guy to be accepted in the church. He knew who Saul was, and he shared that. Number two, be sensitive to needs. Be sensitive to needs. Praise godly actions or behavior in difficult times. Everyone who makes right choices in difficult times needs to be affirmed in that right choice. We always tend to second-guess ourselves, especially the more difficult that decision becomes. Sometimes those decisions cost you friends, family, especially as you're standing up for Jesus. And you are sometimes tempted to wonder, is Christ worth it? And in those moments, somebody needs to come and say, yes, he is, and good on you for believing that and choosing that way. Sometimes we just need to say, you go, girl. Thank you, the one or two of you that <laughs> laughed at that. That's encouraging to me. One of you got that joke. There are too many people making bad decisions in tough times. And so when we see someone doing well, we need to encourage them in the good times. Number three, and this is most crucial, think before you speak. Think before you speak. Don't be like this husband and his wife. Husband Ed says to his wife one night, you look positively beautiful tonight, honey. You just look beautiful. His wife Janice happily responds, Ed, you're such a flatterer. To which Ed says, no, it's true. I couldn't even recognize you. <laughs> Think before you speak. You were doing well, Ed. Just leave it there, man. Don't say any more words. You complimented. She received the compliment. Just zip it and just say, yep, that's it. Now, I'm sure you didn't even mean anything by that, right? Oh, I couldn't even recognize you. You're so beautiful tonight. But just think now, think now about your words, okay? A number of years ago, this is probably 10, 15 years ago, Shanti and I had a couple over for dinner. We were trying to make friends with them. They were new to our church. 
It's one of those individuals that just you struggled to make conversation. You just struggled always to make conversation. They weren't uh, really adept at conversation. So you're asking questions. You're trying to throw things out there. You're trying to, you know, get the conversation to flow. We have them to dinner. And uh, I said, I, I was trying to find something positive to say. And I said to the, the gentleman who was there with his, with his wife, and I, I said to her, wow, like you're dressed really nice tonight. I just want you to know that I, I noticed you always dress well. You're always really well put together. And she said, thank you. And I felt like, oh, this is an opening for me to continue. To, I've said something good, and I'm going to build on this, right? So I said, yeah, like you're always well put together. I mean, you probably spend all your time at that, right? And I didn't even mean it to be critical. I was just trying to keep it going, keep the conversation going. Would have been better just to have awkward silence. You know? You're, you look nice tonight. Thank you. Sometimes we can be careless with our words, and the compliments we pay are immediately thereafter undercut by just being careless with what we say in the very next sentence. Fourth, be specific. Generalities weaken your message when you're giving compliments. I can't tell you how many times I've had someone come up to me after I've spoken or preached and said, I really liked your sermon today. You did a good job. Thank you for that message. And then I say, really? Well, what exactly did I say today that you found really helpful? And their eyes glaze over. And they're like, you know, like that when you, like, um, the prayer was good. The prayer was good. Thanks. I appreciate that encouragement. I mean, if you can't even remember what I preached about, do you think I feel like I've really done a great job preaching? Be specific. Be specific. Have you ever noticed how you have been affected by someone who's praising you publicly? Not only do you hear the compliment, but everyone else hears the compliment. And if you publicly praise an individual, you've given him or her encouragement to continue on. And it doesn't cost you anything. It costs you a little bit of time to think about what is true and what is beautiful about that person. And then just the commitment to say it. Just the commitment to say it. God's word challenges, challenges us to sweeten our speech. Proverbs 16.24, kind words are like honey, enjoyable and healthy. Romans 14.19 says, So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and for the building up of one another. And Ephesians 4.29, who could ever forget this verse? It exhorts us, Let no unwholesome speech proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for the occasion, edifying those around. Why? The verse goes on, That it may give grace, or the gift of grace, that is, to the ones who are listening or to the hearer. You can do this, church. You can actually encourage and strengthen each other if you would just pay attention to each other and use your words to encourage each other. Secondly, we need words of comfort. Time's starting to get away from me, so I'll try to hustle. Words of comfort. Charles Swindoll once wrote, I have learned a valuable lesson in life when people are hurting. They need more than an accurate analysis and diagnosis of their problems, more than professional advice, much more, more, much more than a stern, firm turn of a verbal wrench that cinches everything down tight. About eight, nine years ago, there was a couple in our church who had 
suffered a miscarriage. She was pretty far along in her pregnancy, and to suffer a miscarriage at that point was absolutely devastating. This couple also happened to be relatively new believers. And so I went to their house to visit them, to comfort them, and I was on edge thinking, okay, this is a moment of suffering in their life. They're going to be questioning their faith. They're going to be wondering about everything. I mean, this could potentially break them away from Christ. They might drift as a result of this. All these fears are running through my mind. So I'm researching, looking up verses that would address suffering, that would talk about the problem of evil in the world and how God is still good and sovereign and reigns over all that. I go in with ears that are hypersensitive to any little comment that might even possibly just in the slightest way be interpreted as, as conveying some doubt or some distrust of God. And in that moment, they're not looking for a theological lesson on how God can bring good out of suffering and evil. They're looking for someone just to sit there with them. They're not drifting away. They're not losing their foundation, their faith. They're just hurting from the suffering of this world. What they need is not a theological discourse on how God can still work through this. They need someone to sit there and cry with them. Because anytime you lose a child, it hurts. They didn't need someone to tell them that God was still good. They knew he was good. They just needed someone to sit there and comfort them. At most, at most. Romans 8.28. We know that God can work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. You don't need to have the roadmap figured out for how God is going to bring some miracle out of this particular disaster. You just need to be willing to sit there with them and to cry with them and to reassure them even though you can't see it and they can't see it you need to grow in a word of comfort and last words of concern we can spend a lot of time here on this one but caring for one another loving one another and encouraging one another will at times require rebuke now, I say that word rebuke. I don't mean that you need to get in their face and start yelling and screaming. By no means does rebuke mean condemnation. By no means does rebuke mean just tearing a strip off of someone. And as I said at the start, don't even attempt a word of concern if you have failed in words of affirmation and comfort. Don't even try. A person's not going to hear you unless they know that there are things about them that you find admirable. If you're just there to tell them what a disgusting person they are, and you've never once tried to tell them what a beautiful person you think they are, they're not going to be inclined to listen much anyway to your critique. Whatever is said has to be said with grace and love, and you have to learn that grace and that love in other areas before you're going to be effective in this one. But before we get to that, let me tell you the exact wrong person to offer a word of concern. Answer this honestly. Do you remember asking someone this morning, how are you? And not the pat cliche like, hey, how's it going? But genuinely, you want to know how someone is? Just this morning as you've come to church, can you recall asking someone that? Or how are you? Do you remember having a meal with someone, going back a little further, 
And perhaps you can remember that person talked on and on and on about themselves and they never once asked about you or they never even seemed to include you in the conversation. One of those individuals that can just go from topic to topic and doesn't even need a response from you, just is a walking, talking, one-man show. Have you ever spent a day shopping with a friend and she never once said to you, how are you doing? How are your kids? How's your husband? How's your family? Or maybe she briefly asked you and you started to share with her about your life and then she quickly diverted the conversation back to herself. Maybe you're hearing me describe these situations and you're thinking, that could be me. I love to talk. And I don't really recall asking anyone else how they're doing. If that's your heart condition, if that's you, you're not the right person to offer a word of concern. The rules of communication have changed. When I was a young boy, teachers taught us about appropriate communication, and they likened it to ping pong. You hit the ball, it goes over. You wait for that guy to hit the ball, and it comes back. Ping pong, back and forth, back and forth. Nowadays, communication is more like Xbox or Nintendo. It's no longer a give-and-take game that goes back and forth. It's a, a first-person shooter. I've got my gun. I'm just going to go through it. I'm going to do this all on my own. More and more, communication isn't about the give-and-take. It's about me just telling you what I think and then walking away. So the rules of communication have changed. And what we need to recognize, church, is that this is not biblical. This is selfish. The verses in Philippians 2, 3 to 4 step on my toes, and they should step on yours as well. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility count each one as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not merely to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you are genuinely concerned for others, I will have shown up in just asking them how they are and listening. And if you're that person who has built those relationships where you ask how someone is and you're genuinely curious and you want to know and you hear their heart, then you can be the person that when you see them struggling in some area of their life, when you see them making decisions that you know will take them away from the Lord, you can offer a word of concern. Please understand, if you do speak into someone's life. You speak for the glory of Christ and not for the outcome. Let me set you free. If someone gets upset at what you have said, if you have said it in a spirit of love and if it has been grounded in biblical truth, you don't need to concern yourself with their reaction. You don't need to beat yourself up and think, oh, if I had found some other way to say this, if I'd been smoother or slicker, no. If it is true that you care about people and you have a relationship with this person and you've invested and you've asked them how they are and you know them, then you have the freedom in Christ, brother to brother, sister to sister, to take someone aside and say, I'm concerned for the decisions you're making here. I'm just speaking out of love, but I'm concerned for this. That's a difficult thing to do. It really is. It's something that we all need to grow in. We come back to the text this morning, and we look at the outcome. Barnabas takes Saul into the apostles, declares to them how he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus, 
And verse 28 says that Saul went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He was set free to minister because of the encouragement that Barnabas had given him. And he ministered, proclaiming the name of the Lord. One thing that we all need to be confronted about, are we people who give through our words? Are we people who bring life to others through what we say so that they can go forward and preach the name of Jesus? Or are we people that are perpetual bottomless pits, black holes, where we're always wanting to get, but we never want to give. We're always wanting people to say nice things about us, but we never want to say nice things about them. We always want people to admire us, but we don't take the time to notice them, to admire them. None of this is biblical. And if that's the kind of person you are, if that's the kind of church that we are, then we will not reap the blessing of people being unleashed to go from here to preach the name of Jesus. The solution is that we take our eyes off of ourselves and we look back to Christ and who he is. We fall in love all over again with the glory of Christ and we preach Christ and we uphold Christ and we let that be our focus. We let that be our delight. We let that be the thing that takes that gives us joy from which we take pleasure. And when that happens, then it's natural that we're going to want to share that joy with others, that we're going to ask how they're doing, that we're going to invest in their lives, that we're going to be able to encourage them. Say, how do I know this? Because we see this in the life of Christ. Many years ago, when I first moved here to Canada, I was homesick, called of the Lord, and voluntarily came to Kamloops, British Columbia, to plant a church, lead Bible studies, do what I could to help this thing get off the ground. I arrived in August. I left the beautiful land of Texas. Temperature 42 degrees Celsius with 60% humidity. I came in August, church, August, like right now, this time of year. I went out of my house at night, about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. It was maybe 18, 16 degrees outside. I left 42 and 60% humidity. I came to 0% humidity and 18. I was freezing to death. I put on my parka with the giant hood and the fur lining. I'm standing in my front yard and I'm like, God, what have I done? Oh, Lord, forgive me. I'm freezing alive here. And it just got worse. Like at the temperature, we went into fall, and then winter came, and I just suffered. I was driving up to Logan Lake, which if you think it's cold down here, it's way colder up there. And I'm like, Lord, why am I driving out to Logan Lake? I'm from Texas. They so, and I miss football. It was football season. I turn on the TV. CFL, Canadian football. Okay, I can do this. You watch it for like five minutes, you're like... This is not football. I don't know what this is. Georgia sweet tea. You cannot get, I'm like, can I have some tea? They're like, yeah, sweet tea? Okay. They bring me like a cup of hot tea with like a packet of sugar. I'm like, no, Georgia sweet tea. Some of you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. I was like, Lord, I'm miserable. No sweet tea, no football, and it's freezing cold here. 
It's interesting. I had voluntarily come at the call of God. And in my prayer, I look back at my journal, my prayer journal from that time, and I look back at the notes that I wrote at that time. And it's interesting how as I'm talking to the Lord, it went from God called and I volunteered and I said, here am I, send me, I'll go, to God, why did you make me come here? I'm ashamed to admit it. But you can see how quickly the heart turns in on itself. You come because of the joy that God sets before you. You encounter a little bit of difficulty and immediately you think, this is not what I want and it's all about me. When you look at the life of Christ, the night before he was to be crucified, he's walking with his disciples, with the 11. Judas is taken off at this point. And the Gospel of John records for us that he engages in several rather lengthy, extended discourses, reassuring the apostles, saying, don't worry, after I go, I will send a helper to you. I will not leave you alone. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. He says, I will be with you. He encourages them. The scriptures record for us very specifically in the Gospel of John. He says, I have told you these things. I have used these words so that in me you may have peace. Here's a man who is in a very short period of time, less than three hours away from being hung on a cross to be executed. He is about to undergo brutalization, torture, unlike anything you and I will ever know. He is going to not only be tortured by man, but he is going to be separated from his heavenly father, calling out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he knows all of this is about to happen. And rather than sitting there saying, man, why is God making me do this and throwing a pity party for himself or ripping the disciples who can't even stay awake to pray for him? No. Instead, he takes his guys, he walks with them, and he, listen to this, he encourages them. I'm about to get totally destroyed setting me aside for a moment. He says, this is what I want you to know. I have told you these things. I have used my words, he says, so that in me you may have peace, that you can be encouraged. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. He's about to be killed And he's using his final moments with these guys to encourage them that no matter what comes, no matter what happens, with God, they'll get through it. Is that your heart for each other? Will you be an encourager to the brother or the sister sitting next to you in the pew? My prayer, church, is that you would be to each other, Barnabas. Let's pray. Father, we say thank you for sending your son. We say thank you, Lord, for him dying on the cross in our place. Above all else, we say thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. 
It is such a joy to be reconciled, to be redeemed, and to be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. But we also say thank you, Lord, for your encouragement to us, your constant grace in our lives, your affirmation, your correction at times. Lord, your rod and your staff, they are indeed a comfort to us. Father, help us to be like your son. Help us, Lord, to be ready at that moment when necessary to offer words of correction, words of concern or rebuke. But Lord, we pray you would soften our hearts and free us to be quick with encouragement, to be constantly lifting each other up and building each other up. God, show us how to do this and give us the freedom to do it, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.